this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing and commenting. It means a lot, and I appreciate it uh, that you let me know that you're listening. And with me today is a good friend from my cyclocross team, Ken Andrews. He's the principal architect at ARC 11 and uh, just a great human. And architecture has always been one of my things that I've been fascinated about. I don't know anything about it. I know what I like and just wanted to talk about that. And Ken, welcome and happy Saturday morning to you. Happy Saturday morning to you as well. Yeah, thanks. So, I'm one of several principal architects, but uh, not, not, not just the principal architect. Okay. Well, you're my favorite. <laughs> Thank you all. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's good. <laughs> the others are good too, but you're my favorite. <laughs> thanks. I appreciate that. So my uh, my uh, civilian definition of architecture, at least how I look at it, is sort of the intersection of art and function and style. But as a professional in the the industry, how do you define it officially? And, and what is it? What does architecture mean to you? Oh wow, we're going to start there. Um, that is a big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot. Architecture is an incredibly uh, broad discipline. Um, and you'll see it go from everywhere from, you know, architects will graduate from school and they'll go into everything from urban design, uh, in like planning type scenarios, uh, to like shaping cities at kind of the 10,000 foot level down to, um, moving into things like furniture design, et cetera. And I think, you know, for me, when I really start to think of the question is, is what is, there's this, there's this polemic debate in architecture about is architecture an art or is architecture a craft? Okay. And, um, that's a that's a really old a really old argument that goes back to Palladio and back to the Renaissance. And uh, but there's also another argument that is you know what is design versus art, and that's I think where I kind of look at it personally. Um, and one of my uh, idols is the is Charles and Ray Eames. I'm sure everybody's familiar with the Eames, famous for their furniture and um, movies like powers of 10, et cetera. And, um, you know, I think there was a, there's a, there's a talk that Charles Eames did where he talks about, you know, what is the difference between art and design and that, um, while both are equally relevant and important to culture and society and kind of making statements, uh, design generally has a problem to solve. Mm. So when you have a problem to solve, there becomes a bit more of a, uh, a, a pragmatic side to what the art is trying to address. And I think for me, like a, a sort of the broadest sense to me, that's what architecture is as design is as if there's, there's problems and issues that need to be addressed uh, and resolved through the making of space, the making of place um, and, and how we all occupy and inhabit the world. So, you know, in its broadest sense, I think that's what, that's what great architecture is, is when it resolves resolves something that was a problem through a very aesthetic uh, and, and, and beautiful way. And when it, and it speaks to the human spirit, right? I mean, I think we've all, we've all been to some place in the world, whether we've known it or not, that it just speaks to our spirit and says, wow, this is, this is amazing. And sometimes that's a natural place, but most for me as an architect, it's when it's a built environment that you can have that feeling. It's like, okay, this is speaking to my spirit. So. I love that. Hey, do me a quick favor. Unzip your hoodie. Your mic is hitting your zipper a little bit. Oh. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. Um, yeah, I love the, you know, as a former engineer, I get the problem solving side of things. And I, when it comes to art and design, I'm more of a manipulator. I can use Photoshop and Illustrator, but I can take something that exists and change it into something else. And I always have this great admiration for people that can see the blank page or the, the blank slabs to use a construction term 
and visualize what that is. And that I think is, is true art and creativity, at least for me. Um, have you, have you been artistic your whole life? How did, how did this, how did you lead to architecture? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, so I grew up in Western Colorado, uh, and then moved around a lot. Uh, but we grew up on Blue Mesa Reservoir. This is the vast majority of my formative years until high school. We're in Montrose and then in, then I went to high school in Montrose, excuse me. Um, but yeah, I was always, my parents owned a business up there and we had a dining room table and I was always just kind of at one of the tables in the restaurant. Uh, we owned a restaurant and I was always at one of the tables, always drawing and sketching and, and doing stuff as a little kid uh, in between running around in the mountains and being in nature as much as I could. Uh, and then high school, definitely I was very artistic. I, um, uh, you know, a punk rock kid in a redneck town. I was uh, <laughs> pretty rebellious, um, and the best way to rebel, I think, was to be more interested in art than it was anything, and be in the art room. And um, uh, this is a whole other story, but my art teacher was just my saving grace through high school. Uh, by my senior year, I had taken all of the classes I needed to graduate, and I could just do art. And so I was doing art at her house Well, I was doing art at school and then I was skipping school to go snowboarding. And then I was going to her house to do art at her house and her studio after hours. And because of that, she pretty much got me through my last year of high school, or I probably would have dropped out just to go snowboarding. Um, so very impassioned. And I had visions of, um, I had visions of being an artist or going to do sculpture. I was really into ceramics. Um, and then, after a, a, you know, a few years, actually just snowboarding and living and doing construction, uh, I had gotten into construction and then, um, I went to college and I actually started in engineering, uh, cause my brothers are engineers and my father always wanted me to do something more engineering, but he supported me doing art as well. Um, but after, you know, getting through three or four semesters of calculus and basically having a, you know, barely passing GPA, I, uh, <laughs> I started an architecture school and um, immediately I found my calling and I had like perfect grades all through architecture school. So it was just one of those things where I think the calling was there. So it's amazing that the, the power that a teacher can have. And um, I don't know if you want to give a shout out to your teacher, if she's still around, but oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Nita Lightsey. Uh, Nita Lightsey, she's, oh man, I'm, I'm guessing she's probably in her 80s at the moment, but she's still alive. She lives over Montrose, has this wonderful little farmhouse right um, at the base of the San Juan Mountains. And uh, every time I'm over there, I always make it a point to stop in and see her and see what she's doing. So, and that's been what, you know, 20, I don't know, 26, 27 years now, whatever it's been. Sure. What was your high school art like? What I know you mentioned ceramics, but what did you enjoy? What did you focus on? Oh, geez, you know, I was exploring everything. I did printmaking. I did a lot of illustration work. Um, I toyed in graphic design. Like I designed the uh, recycling logos for the high school to put on all the recycling bins around the high school. Um, I got into like, you know, at that time, I also thought that I might actually be the owner of a, um, of <laughs> you know, extreme sports, quote unquote, were kind of becoming a thing. And I thought, well, maybe I would be an owner of an extreme sports store um, and sell snowboards and skydiving and all this kind of stuff. So I drew up logos for that. Um, so all kinds of like visual arts like that. But my real calling was getting into sculpture and into ceramics. Um, you know, the art, fortunately, then in Montrose, the arts program was pretty strong. We had both a, a visual arts room and a ceramics room. And since Nita was so big into ceramics, that was what her, she did. Um, uh, she really put a lot of heart and soul into it. So, you know, I was in that room making clay and pottery all the time. I became my senior year of high school. I was like a fixture in there. Every other student came through and they're like, oh, Ken's in here. <laughs> you know, because I was doing so much independent study. Um, and it was great. You know, I did everything from throwing on the wheel to uh, roll forming to the coils. I mean, and the ironic thing is, is I haven't done it since high school but it was definitely a passion of mine at that time to do ceramics. So. Do you ever feel the calling to go explore it? Uh, it's, it's been 26 years, but have you just like yes. you know, having a cup of coffee, looking out the window going, you know what? I totally. think I need to, 
Okay. Yeah, I have a few friends that are actually into ceramics, and they, you know, they post what they're doing in their stuff, and it's just, you know, on social media, and it's like, oh man, that'd be great to just get dirty with clay again. So, but you know, it's such a setup. I mean, to do it right, you have it's an investment. You really have to have yeah. the right setup to do it. So. <laughs> oh, so before I forget, I, oh, go yeah, ahead, go ahead. That's okay. I just so for now, I try to, you know, in the last few years, I've been getting back into like I've got my, you know. I got watercolors and I've got markers and stuff and I've been sort of dabbling and especially my daughter who's seven is incredibly art oriented, um, prolific. And so, uh, she's really been getting me to kind of dig out all the old materials and kind of teach her mm. to do stuff, which has been really fun. So I got into over the, well, I guess a year ago over the quarantine, I've always had a fascination with street art, you know, um, yeah. like crush walls and rhino. <clears throat> and I found a book that was, um, graffiti school. I think it was almost like a textbook. I think there was a street artist that wrote a book and in, you know, in fits and starts, I'll actually sit down and work on bubble letters. And my ultimate goal is to, get a 10 by 10 canvas and do some word. I, I think I need to settle on the word and then work backwards and figure that out. But it's so much fun. Like I get lost in it, like on a, like a good mountain bike ride. I just, time yeah. just disappears when the hand is drawing and, and everything else is, is flowing. And that's I, just, the, I, that's the key. It's like the flow, you know, like anything in life. It's like when you find the flow, you just get lost in it and, it's been a long time since I found that in art, but, you know, recently, like, like, you know, rendering a pencil drawing, like, you know, it takes 10 hours to render a pencil drawing or something. And you just find yourself where six hours into it and you're like, Oh my God, where did the time go? <laughs> and at that point you also just don't want to give up because you got to finish it. Right. So. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Before What's I forget um, the, who, the powers of 10, Charles, spell that last name for me. I want to get that right. Uh, so I can link to it. Eames, E-A-M-E-S. And they're all, the Eames Foundation has all of the Eames films online. You can watch them for free. They're amazing. Oh, wow. Okay. There's everything. So, I mean, you know, they're amazing because they're everything from, um, they were architects by training and artists by training, but they did everything from video and film and uh, furniture and houses and buildings. And then they were consultants for IBM. And this is, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. And they were consultants for IBM on how to like uh, create different environments and office environments. And they worked with airports to figure out how they were organized. And all of this stuff is documented in these films. So I think it's I don't know, probably 30 hours more or more of like films and movies that you can watch. Oh, I love that. One of my favorite series of the past couple of years was um, Abstract on Netflix. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've cycled through that at least twice every episode and just with like I said before, the creation and just the admiration of someone that can take something out of nothing. And, and I do that in other ways, but just to see them sketch it and the stage design and the shoe design and yeah. the car design, it's like, man. <laughs> so, so Bjark Ingels is one of the episodes on that. I don't know if you've watched his work with, um, he owns a practice in Denmark called Big. And uh, he's probably one of the most influential architects in the world right now is Bjork Ingels. His episode is really amazing. And I will go other, watch it tonight. Yeah, the other one that I really love in that abstract series is uh, Mary Oxman, uh, which she's, uh, uh, she's a professor at MIT. She's Israeli, and she, um, uh, she found herself um, in medicine in the Israeli military, and then she got out of the military, but medicine wasn't her calling. And she found herself in architecture, but she's brought biology and architecture together in fascinating ways to where she's now, she's, you know, she's pushing the boundaries of how you actually grow architecture using organisms. Uh, it's fascinating. So if you haven't watched that one, I would go see that one again, too. Just going back to what we were talking about, the notion of design and solving a problem, but how you bring all of the different disciplines together as a conductor in architecture. I think, you know, those two, those two in particular are are knocking it out of the park. I don't remember that one in particular. So I don't think I've seen it. Cause I think I, that would have resonated with me as well. So I think I may have missed that one I'll go check it out. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I want to get uh, maybe granular here for a second. And, and what's the connection between architecture and construction and the, mm -hmm. the give and take and the, the balance of yeah. that. 
Well, that's huge. So, you know, that's part of the, going back to what we said earlier about, you know, is architecture and art or a craft? Um, you know, there is definitely people that would argue that architecture uh, is on paper. It's the idea. It's the, it's the, um, it's the idea. It's the philosophy. It's like what you're trying to accomplish is the architecture and that the craft portion of it is actually making it built and making it in the built world. Um, I think that's a fairly academic approach to it. Um, I, for me personally, ha having had a past life as an academic where I was teaching at the university and really everything was theoretical to a, be more of a practitioner today, I think it's, I think there's a, they're much more intertwined. Um, and I think that's also why I use the definition of design as solving a problem because the problem can be as simple as, as you know, um, you know, how are you doing something in the hospital to, you know, in today's times, how are we designing hospital spaces to contain COVID? Uh, that's the idea, but how you then execute that through material is very, very important. Um, and everything from however you're starting to configure a space to how it's going to get built, uh, the best of architects are, are intertwining those two together uh, from the very ideation of an idea. Um, you know, in, especially in today's environment where construction technologies and sustainability are so imperative as we're facing climate change, um, you know, it's very easy to kind of fall back on rote uh, construction solutions to solve ideas. But the problem with that is, is that we're continuing to uh, just decimate the environment. So it's really imperative that architects uh, really stand up and face what's happening uh, in, the, in that environment at the beginning of their ideation with how they're going to build something and what materials they're going to use and, and how it's going to function and how it's going to operate, you know, uh, carbon sequestration and all of that kind of stuff. So that's that new level of engineering that's coming on to it that's on top of all of the other things like structural design, mechanical design, civil design, all the other things that we have to incorporate into our ideas. So, you know, I, I like to think of the architect um, as the conductor of the symphony in some ways, right? Like we're, we're not the ones that are, we have the idea for the music and we're the ones that sort of coordinate and make all the music come together. But it, it's a huge collaborative effort that requires many, 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 many people. So. I don't know if that answered the question directly, but I mean, that's that's kind of the complexities of construction in my mind in a nutshell. So. Yeah, I'm trying to draw an analogy back when I was an engineer, sort of the, the balance between hardware and software or production and uh, everything else. Because there's you know, no one discipline or, uh, I guess, implementation can win all the time. There's always trade-offs because you know i remember when i again back when i was an engineer we'd have to set the circuit boards and the hardware and that's done and the expense of the tooling there's a, a go no-go where we can't go back anymore and then the the code would you know work and then we'd have to fix certain things that would um would do that and um i'm guessing almost a little bit maybe in in my analogy here that and I think you you hit upon this too that the architecture is the software, the construction is the hardware, but then it, they have to blend, they have to merge because it has to ultimately function, and then being visible, it still has to be uh, aesthetically pleasing to the eye. And yeah the, yeah, the the fact that this works is just I think a testament to you know like you said the human spirit first of all to create these things, but also implement them. Right. And it's, it, it's, it's always amazing to me, like, you know, having been a teacher, you know, in the academic side of architecture and how we get through our educations and training, I mean, the studio environment, um, which is the, the, the place that we're as students making buildings, right, uh, is, is a lot of times the center point of the education. Um, but it's also kind of a fallacy that that's where it should be, because as you were just pointing out, I mean, there's just so much that has to happen. Um, and there's so many layers of what has to go into there. And that there are, you know, I want to kind of broaden the notion of an architect because uh, while sure. you can have a training of an architect, um, you know, there are architects that go into explicitly project management um, that are really just good organizers. They may not be very good designers, but they're incredibly good at seeing the process and how to organize that process. And as we're talking about, it's so complicated. Um, that that's imperative. And then you've got people who are just incredibly good at seeing space 
and having that kind of artistic emotional connection to what it's like to walk through a room uh, with a very particular lighting quality and a material quality and acoustic quality where it's really speaking to the human spirit but um, you know they may not you know they may be the least organized person you can possibly imagine and you know they rely on that manager to kind of keep everything going uh, and then everything in between right I mean it, you know I mean just, it's, it's incredible to think about you know, things like airports and um, high rises and the amount of energy and effort and teamwork and coordination that goes into them. At the same time, in our practice, you know, half of our practice is the custom home. And it's the same thing. I mean, there is an incredible amount of detail and coordination and collaboration that has to go into them uh, at the level that we're doing them uh, with, with contractors and our design teams and engineers. So, you know, and I think that's it's interesting that uh, over the years, because of those complexities, architecture has uh, really kind of uh, one hand you could say devolved or evolved into a, uh, a practice of specialists. Um, I personally like to think of myself as a bit more of a generalist. I'm fascinated with all design problems and how they go together, but I'm also clearly aware that like, I would not be good at a hospital. There's so much technical stuff that has to go into a hospital that, that I would not be a good architect for a hospital. But but I would love the idea of designing the sort of like envelope and the master organization and sort of like the lobbies and the sort of big pieces, but getting into all of the stuff that would be required for x-ray rooms and clinics and you know patient rooms and all that kind of stuff. I just don't have that knowledge. Hmm. And uh, I've, you know, I've done the parade of homes and I've got friends that you know, have these amazing homes and toured them. And there's some that I just walk in and I love, and I feel at home, like it's just welcoming. And I don't know if it's, and this is where I, I don't know why I like what I like, but it's the, the colors or it's the, it has to be the light or the flow. Then I walk into other homes and just kind of like, and, and not even custom, but just look around and I just go, I don't, yeah, like it, it's just, I feel like a Roomba kind of bumping into stuff either literally or, or mentally. And um, yeah. And I, I, and that, that leads me to another question is collaborating with somebody that's got the money to do a custom home. And I think it's customer service too. And oh, yeah. like, Absolutely. like, how do you, <laughs> how do you, how do you protect them from themselves? Because if I, if I won the lottery, I'd be calling you and I go, Ken, I want a cool house. And I want two things. I want a helipad and a fire pole. Right. Right. <laughs> Go to work. Wow. Those would be two really cool helicopter. Things to, those are two really cool things to have to deal with. Um, no, it's true. It, it, that, so that's a really good question. Um, residential architecture, especially, uh, is very, very personal. Um, and it's a, something that, uh, I think when it comes to architecture, we all have the closest relationship to the home because we've all lived in a home. Uh, we all have a certain idea of what home is. Um, and that also carries across various levels of, uh, of economic and social class as well, right? Uh, you know, how I grew up, you know, I never really lived in a proper house uh, growing up on Blue Mesa Reservoir until I was probably 13 or 14. I mean, I had a I had shelter over my head. I had a bedroom. We had, but we lived above a restaurant. It wasn't, you know, oh. framed home, right? Um, other than we also did have houses on our property that we also slept in at times, but it was like, you know, it was always just kind of mismatch. Um, whereas there's other people that come from backgrounds where they lived in 10,000 square foot, 15,000 square foot estates or multiple estates their entire life, and so you, you definitely end up having a very different. Um, relationship to home and architecture based on your background. And I think that that's also what feeds into what you were getting at about what makes something speak to you versus to somebody else. Um, you know, I'm a modernist. Uh, we do very modern architecture or contemporary architecture, however you want to define it. Um, but at the same time, I can appreciate really well done traditional architecture. Uh, at the same time, I can also really despise horribly done traditional architecture and horribly done modern architecture. And I think the best that I can say is, is that what speaks to people is that our, our human nature, we can recognize proportion, light, sound, texture, color, um, 
And those are things when they're done in harmony to our individual spirits, um, they speak to us and they can resonate with us. And I think that's that that goes back to just a fundamental human condition that no matter if you're trained in design or not, we all have the ability to recognize good from bad. Um, mm-hmm. Now, whether or not we commodify it that way and we recognize it as we commodify it, that's different. And, you know, there's always somebody to buy a home because they need it either from a commodity and shelter and they're accepting what it is because that's what they can afford. Um, but when it comes to the custom home, people aren't settling, right? They're saying, I don't want to settle for what I was available out there. Or I want something that's tailored to me. And we always approach that as um, a fine suit. You know, it's like a fine suit or a fine dress. Like when you go into a tailor to have something made, they're going to take your measurements and they're going to make it fit perfectly for you. They're going to use fabrics that you're, that you're most comfortable in. And that's how we look at the design of a home too is, is we clearly you're, you're going to come to us and hire us because you want something modern. Uh, and once we start that conversation, it really is about space and function. And like you said, your, your um, fire pole and your helicopter pad. Okay. <laughs> My first question to you would be is, is like, well, what's the fire pole doing? You know, is it the fastest way for you to get from your bedroom to your kitchen for breakfast? Or yes. is, it, is it the fastest way to go from, you know, uh, your office to your bike room so you can go for a ride, right? I mean, and and all of a sudden, there's very interesting conditions around what the purpose of that fire pole is and, and where does it want to be inside of the house and what's the experience going to be around it. So, and we, so we just drill into that kind of stuff with all of our clients. Um, and on the residential side, the really interesting part of it is, is, especially when you're dealing with a couple, there there's another layer of our job and that starts to become marriage counseling. You know, because I was just going to ask, I was just going to ask. It's such a, it's such a personal thing. We, I think at its best, when we're done doing a home for our clients, we are now one of their better friends. I'm not going to say best, but we've got to know them very well. And if we've done our job right, we have a very good relationship with them for the rest of their time, at least that they own that house, because we're always, we're the experts on their house. Um, but you know, we have dinner with them, we have drinks with them, we, you know, socialize with them and they become very good friends. And that's because some of the very first conversations that we have with them are like, well, what are your bathing rituals? You know, what, what are your eating rituals? Um, what is your daily routine? And it, it takes time to get people to come out of, you know, sometimes come out of their shell and really talk to us about what they really need out of their master bath and bedroom scenario. So. Have you ever had a case, so two questions here, where you've had to tell somebody that their baby is ugly? And then have you ever had a situation where you're sensing that as you're building that relationship and that, uh, I'll say, professional intimacy, that you got a sense that something was holding them back that was going to open up just the the best possible design? Um, Yes, on both fronts. um, we always get the part of the design process on the first front is, you know, what is it that you're interested in? Um, you know, going back to your point of like knowing what you feel is good or bad. Uh, some people will walk into a white box that has interesting light shining across it, but it's otherwise incredibly, you know, minimal. Um, and that's what they love. And other people want, uh, you know, stone and steel and all kinds of varied materials. And that's what they want. And we're capable of working in both of those and actually quite love both opportunities. But you've got to get out of people what it is that they want. And uh, we do that through asking them to sh- share Pinterest pages, pull precedents, you know, go through magazines, um, photographs. Sometimes it might even be, you know, what's been a life experience that really speaks to you in nature that really, that you know, what's the qualities of a space that in nature that has spoken to you in terms of how light is treated or material is treated. Um, that also being said, I mean, I think everybody comes to us with a preconceived idea. I mean, if you're going to hire an architect and you've thought about building a custom home or an office building or something, you've probably given it enough thought that you're going to come to the table with some preconceived ideas. And I think that our job is to take those preconceived ideas and then also merge them with all of the constraints of the site and the program and the budget and everything else, and then come up with what the reality of it is. And I think 
most often it's quite different than someone's preconceived ideas, but we also very often are told that we have far exceeded everything that they have expected. And I think that's the best compliment that we can ever have. Absolutely. A question about being a modernist and, um, I spent Christmas down in Salida this year and mm-hmm. just love the the Western slope that way or Southwestern, whatever it is. And we stayed in a, a interior loft in like on F street <clears throat> and partially exposed brick and there were no windows, but they had some uh, light tubes and just stepping downstairs and looking at the two-story buildings and the facades and things like that. And you mentioned the, the timelessness of those structures and as a modernist, if you're designing something for a client and it's going to be modern, do you have an eye on or a thought about the timelessness of the design? Or does it is that part of your skill set, part of your experience that this will look relevant and gorgeous in five years and in 50 years? And, and how do you approach that? Is that, is that or is that even a concern? Oh, no, it's definitely a concern. Um, it's a constant conversation, actually. And, you know, we debate this in the office all the time. Like, what is timeless or what is of our time? Hmm. Um, and I think for us, it's our architecture at Arc 11 at its best is when it's of its place. And that's how we really hmm. look at it. It's of its place and for its purpose. Um, and, uh, you know, going back to... Um, uh, I think it's Vitruvius that said, you know, architecture is about commodity, firmness, and delight. Uh, I'll have to fact check that one for you for a second because it could be Palladio, but I'm pretty sure it was Vitruvius. Um, my partner EJ will kill me for not knowing offhand, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vitruvius. Um, uh, but you know the whole idea of commodity, firmness, and delight, you know, is 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 imperative, and I think that's what kind of creates timelessness. There's always going to be trends. There's always going to be fashion. Um, you know, it's ironic right now that brass is like a huge, a huge movement. Everybody wants this, you know, antique brass finishes, uh, and you know, I've spent most of my career removing brass from like 1960s and 70s houses. And replacing it with silver, chromes, and stainless steel and pewter. And now nobody wants any of that. They want brass. You know, it's just kind of ironic. <laughs> but but it's not the same brass as the 50s and 60s. It's now like the antique brass. But it's, it's using antique brass in very modern lines, very clean shapes. And, and it's just a, it's warmer, right? That's what everybody says is that they, they like the warmth of what the, that material brings versus the coldness of the stainless steel. So, you know, I mean, we're always going to have those kinds of trends. But I think... When architecture is designed for the place, what I mean by that is none of our work can be taken from one site and picked up and plopped on another site and have it function the same way or seem like it responds to that. And I, I think that's, the, that's a big indicator of like when you have good work is, is that it's tied to its place and its people, which is also kind of interesting then because, you know, in our work, what happens when somebody commissions a custom home that we've designed so specifically to them and then they sell it. Um, mm. You get somebody new that comes in. We, and, and that's it. we have projects that uh, we have one project in Boulder that my partners did at the very beginning of arc 11. And we have now touched it, I think four times with four different owners in 27 years. And each time it gets better because each time there's this kind of editing and editing and editing to sort of make the spaces better and sort of current. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, what was, what has been your biggest challenge and most rewarding? It doesn't have to be the same project and it could be different, but what has, what has tested you and what has given back the most in terms of a project? Hmm. I don't know if I can say anything about a particular project. Um, you know, I've had challenging clients. I've had challenging contractors, uh, challenging schedules, um, budgets, you know, all of these things create lots of stress. Um, and I think, you know, the most, one of the most rewarding things I can just honestly say, and it just continues to amaze me is the process. Um, you know, to, 
I think to be a really good architect, it's about creation. It's about uh, you have to be optimistic, you know, which mm. times like today, it's kind of challenging. But, you know, we're still being very optimistic about what we what we have to offer, what we can do for people. And you have to be optimistic because you're bringing you're bringing something into the world that's going to be here for a very long time. You know, you know, we, we like to think that we're bringing our homes into the world for 100 years, not 10 years and that they will get edited and they will get used. And the design process, you know, you're constantly thinking about all the opportunities. Um, and while you have constraints being put upon you by clients and, and sites and budgets, you know, all of the opportunities that are there are just so um, just thrilling. And then when you see it start to take shape in a, on a piece of paper, or we build tons and tons of physical models still at our office. We're, while we use a lot of digital work, we also do a lot with physical models. And you see the little physical model and you're peering into it. And then, you know, I've got a, a designer working with me who's, or an architect working with me, and they're doing the computer model and we're orbiting around it. And that's all, you know, you're, you're just so insaturated into that. And then, you know, you're done doing all the drawings. And then a year later, you get to stand in the space. And this is still such, Matt, I kid you not, this is still like the most surreal feeling that I ever, I, even to this day, 20 some years later, you stand in a space and it's like, huh, it's like the model. And it's just this like, it's so weird. because It's like, oh my God, it worked. And I'm still just amazed that it worked every time. I, it's like, it, you can feel it. It's like this feeling in your stomach. Sure. And just like I, I spent all this time and energy working on this and it came out. And so that that's like the, one of the best feelings. That's why I say I can't really give it a project because sure. I think every project still does that to me. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, a bathroom addition or, you know, a 30,000 square foot office building. I just love that feeling of stepping into a space, which is to me why construction and design are so intertwined. Um, as far as the bad stuff, you know, as our office has grown, you know, there's challenges of personalities and human resources that can be challenging, but that's also, you know, construction sites and contractors and engineers. I think, you know, my biggest growth as a person has probably been having to learn how to deal with um, an ever growing community that is intensely collaborating with each other. And as the, as a principal in that involvement or principal in that process, uh, how my behaviors and my personality and what I do can help kind of lead everything through that. And that's, uh, as a type A personality, that's probably been my biggest challenge through all of this. So. <laughs> You're type A. I do. I've known you for years and I just always thought you were just the, the most mellow, calm individual, oh. <laughs> but maybe that's always been at, at uh, cyclocross races. <laughs> I mean, I like to think that I'm calm, but I mean, I have an ability to definitely be demanding and, and sort of, you know, stern. So, yeah, yeah. There's probably a social difference than a professional difference. Sure. You mentioned optimism, and that's uh, kind of core to my I call adulting 2.0. The past 15, 20 years. Um, where did that sense come from? If you can take me back through looking at things optimistically. Well, you know, that's kind of ironic too, because people probably would say that I'm not an optimist in general, that I'm probably hmm. a realist. Like I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a pessimist, but I, I probably would say that I'm a, a realist. Um, but the notion of having to be optimism related to architecture, I think it's just because of the act of having to create something. And I will give credit to my partner, EJ Mead, who was also one of my professors and undergraduate, um, who's also, who's now my partner. Um, he, uh, he's the one that's definitely always kind of had that attitude and it's rubbed, it's definitely rubbed off on me to recognize that. Yeah. I mean, it's true. If you're going to create something that hundreds of people's or hundreds of thousands of people are going to use, you know, you have to be optimistic about it. And there's, there's a kind of a running joke that architects have God complexes um, because of what we're, you know, we're, we're building the built environment for everybody. And even to this, you know, kind of ironic is like the, the, the tagline for what we're responsible for from our licensing is the, the health, safety, and welfare of the public, right? And wow. Even the government gives us a God complex by telling us what we're responsible for. So. <laughs> 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 oh, that's great. 
I wanted to get some uh, definitions. I'm going to throw up the uh, your Instagram feed here, and I'm just curious about <laughs> okay. some of the, the the wording here because I'm fascinated by it. And I was looking at, and, and I'll share this on the episode because I know this okay. is like a, a vertical or a visual uh, audio format. But um, you know, looking at this post here. And it's the, what is horizontal compression and vertical release? What exactly do those mean architecturally? Um, yeah, so, you know, you, uh, so this picture here of the Sixth Street house, which you're, you're, you're standing in, you're standing in um, uh, this kind of like pantry area space, um, looking out into the vertical circulation core of the house. And then if you were to take a left-hand turn, you'll go to the kitchen. And if you take a right-hand turn, you'll go to the living room. But, um, you know, this is a very tight space where you've got two walls of wood next to you. Um, and as soon as you take three steps forward, you're going to be into this axis of the house where you can look left and right and experience the whole house. Oh, okay. And so there's going to be this kind of, um, you're being compressed, but you're then being released. And we actually, it's, that's what we call it in architecture, compression and release. You'll also see it. You'll also hear it called like denial and release, and it's a it's a classic architectural uh, principle. Um, you know, one of my very 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 favorite spaces in architecture is the. Um, oh great! Now I'm gonna mess it up. Uh, it, it's the. You're gonna have to edit this, Matt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's no. There's no pressure, Ken. It's all good. <laughs> I got a computer in front of me. Um, anyways, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to it. Let me restate that. One of my favorite pieces about architecture is like Roman uh, churches or even Gothic churches where, you know, you enter into these grand magnificent spaces and you come through their porticos, which is their doorways. And then there's like the small, the small chapels or aisles or things that you come through. And then you then step through those. And then all of a sudden you end up into this, you know, space that's hundred feet high and it's just full of light and full of sound. And you get taken it, it, that act as kind of like a transportation from the world that you came from that's taken away from you by going through mm. a smaller space. And then you come into the larger space and then it becomes revealed and it becomes big again, but you're in a whole new space. And this is a device that we use a lot of times in houses, for example, you know, we have so many houses that have amazing sites where, especially in Boulder in the front range where they're on hillsides and you approach the house in sort of a, a road or something that kind of is meandering through. And then you get to the house and you, you know, if you can create this kind of visual block, and then you enter the house into this small space and then you take three steps forward and then all of a sudden you look up and there's this, this incredible view of the flat irons or the mountains or the valley below or whatever. I mean, again, it's that thing that speaks to you. It's like, boom, it hits you like a wall. And I think that's, that's one of those mechanisms of that, of that denial and release that is so powerful. That's fascinating. And so is that, um, that practice, is that, part of the architectural training is there a psychological component in your schooling or your practice where you know that that's how the brain is going to react to these things did you have psycho or psychiatry or psychology courses that um so imbued that at its best i would say yes so my my undergraduate degree is in environmental design which mm. is, uh, which is somewhat about sustainability but really it's more about the built environment and the notion of environmental design is like how does the built environment affect the individual uh, and sustainability experience psychology all of that is part of that um, and mine and in my case it was an emphasis in architecture um, there are people that do environmental design and emphasize on land emphasis on landscape and emphasis on urban planning urban design etc so yeah there's some extent of that and then in graduate school um, through philosophy courses and just through reading and understanding architectural theory. And then also just reading about the canon of architecture that goes back, you know, all the way back to the primitive hut. Um, you get these notions that come out of it. And there are architects, you know, classical architects were playing with these notions and talk about it in their writings. So, yeah, I mean, I think through the course of study, you were exposed to it for sure. 
I'm so excited now that you know I, I know just enough wine lingo to sound <laughs> educated. And so now I'm so excited to go walk through spaces and talk about the horizontal compression and release. <laughs> yeah, and, and for what it's worth, you can do it in both directions, right? You can sort of yeah, compress yeah. somebody this way, you can compress somebody this way, and then you sort of release it to a big space or a big view or or an acoustical experience. So in fact, that's another good example is anytime that you enter a symphony hall, right? I mean, imagine how you oh. felt anytime you walked from or, or a football stadium, right? And you at mile high, when you're walking around the perimeter, you're in the sort of hallways. And then when you walk through those uh, ramps to get to the seats, and as soon as you walk through those seats and you see the football field, think about how you feel. I mean, that's, that's the same, same principle. That never gets old. And I think about opening day at the Rockies going into the stadium. It's just, there's an understanding why it has that effect on me. It makes it even more of a wonderful experience. Yeah. 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 There's other things in architecture. Um, you know, there's this concept of phenomenology, um, which is, uh, we don't have enough time to go into all of the sort of pseudo uh, pseudo psychological aspects of it but you know it's the notion of that we that we um, have a psychological relationship to places experiences materials and things and that when we and that there will be these kinds of you know there's literally synaptic formations in your brain relative to that and it can be things like brick for example like if, you know there's you're from Chicago and you love Chicago brick and you've been a brick for your entire life and you're around it all the time. I mean, there's things in your brain that have probably made you, you know, really feel associated with brick and that when you want a home, there's something about that brick in your home that's going to make you feel really comfortable versus, you know, somebody who wants to have an association with incredibly minimalist uh, white drywall box with you know, rays of light coming across it again. There's this phenomenological reaction to that. I mean, again, it is in our brains how we react to it. And there's lots of both. There's now there's actual um, uh, scientific uh, psychological writings about the notion, but there's also tons and tons of philosophical writings about it, like Derrida and Heidegger, you know, these structuralist hmm. philosophers um, that were writing about our relationships. And to your point, to your question earlier about in architecture, do we go through that stuff? I think that's what I meant by philosophy. I mean, I think at its best, a really good design education uh, will have a lot of philosophy as part of your education in theory so that you can really start to rationalize, not how you can post-rationalize or rationalize or understand what we do in the physical world in a more, um, uh, I guess, spiritual, for the lack of a better word, uh, manner. So. Mm -hmm. These are always my favorite podcast episodes when I have a ton of homework and things to watch and things to read in terms that you said, uh, telemic earlier. I was like, I know I've seen that word somewhere. And I just like, I think I spelled it correctly, but it's, I, I love these when they're just an education and it's, it's been, uh, really cool to explore this. Cause like I said, when I started, I've always been, a fan and, and drawn to architecture. Like when I've traveled to Europe twice, I'll just sit and look at the buildings. It's my favorite thing to do to take a bench and just look at could be the, the water and sanitation department for all I know, but just seeing the, the, the buildings and just sitting in a, and looking at the, the features and the functions and the designs is one of my favorite things. Yeah. Yeah. So I just remembered, like a usually happens, the Pantheon is the name of the building in Rome that I was thinking of earlier. That's okay. one of my favorites. Uh, Saturday morning wasn't putting the connections together, but yeah, the Pantheon is, you know, it's an icon of architecture through time. And in my mind, there's really not much that gets better where it carries all aspects of what architecture needs. Why do you like it? I'm calling it up to take a look at while you're describing it. Um, I, I think it's, it's proportion, uh, the experience. Um, I mean, for me, it really goes back. I think it is that kind of that phenomenal experience. And I mean, I can share my screen and show you, um, 
is that easy for me to do? Yeah, I'll just share my yes, screen please. real quick. Um, so it's a. Um, oh yeah. Uh, it's a it's a temple. It's a Roman temple in the heart of Rome, and um, so it has the it has a Roman dome, but it also has all of the Greek entablature and the Greek temple at the front of it. So you know. If we're going to talk about the home of architecture for Western architecture, at least, um, you know, there's nothing that says more than Western architecture than the Greeks and the Romans. Um, uh, but the experience of it is, is again, that sort of denial of reason. You enter this portico and you go through this, which is very large. I mean, you can see in this photograph, you know, this portico is probably 30, 40 feet tall. And then you enter through this portico and it still stands. And I don't remember when it was built, but it's, you know, it's, several thousand years old now. And when you enter into it, you enter into this space. And so you come through this archway and then you come into this dome, which um, is uh, an icon of concrete construction. The Romans invented concrete and used it. And they created this dome. And if I can find a picture of this in section here, I saw a drawing, but it's a perfect sphere. So there's proportion, right? I mean. Well, here's a, a classical drawing of it, but you can see that the dome is this perfect sphere. If you took the top and the bottom, they would be in touch with each other. Mm. And then the dome sits upon this ring beam of, of steel and chain and concrete that holds it all together, but it's an open oculus. And so um, it's open to the air. And when I experienced it, was um, I was in graduate school and I was on a, a, a fellowship traveling, a traveling fellowship. Um, and I was in Rome and it was probably 95 degrees and hot and crowded. And you stepped into this space and it was full of people, but it was 25 degrees cooler. Wow. This ray of light was shining through the Oculus. Um, and there was just this moment of pause and quiet. I mean, there was just, people were, uh, they were just respectful and they were enjoying the space. And here's that, here's going through the doors and through that archway into that expansion of the space and having that ray of light come down. And then the play of shadow and texture on the, um, on the dome interior, uh, it, it just really spoke to me. And I mean, I, I, I caught myself, I was by myself and I just, um, or I actually I was with my wife, excuse me, who's now my wife. And we both just sat there for an hour and I think just enjoyed the space and, and it just spoke to us. So, Thank you for sharing that. And, and that's how I like to enjoy any place is just sit and be still and just let it gradually start soaking in and, and feeling the space. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are the kinds of anytime you I think anybody, anytime you find a space where it's like, Oh my God, like, I'm feeling something we should stop and, um, and try to figure out why that is. Cause I, there's so much generic space in the world that we just kind of pass through every day and we don't give it any consideration um, that I think we really need to cherish the ones that really do speak to us. That being said, I think we should all really ask questions of ourselves. Why is it that we just pass through spaces every day and not give it any consideration? Um, I would love it if society and culture in general would take much more value in the spaces around us and give it much more privilege to the human condition. Because I think, you know, again, that that notion of being an optimist, that's where I really want to be optimistic is just, just the more and more I can get people to think about their spaces and what and what what the world has to offer, the better. So that's a amazing point. Yeah, I think you just I think everybody would feel better. I mean, I know when I tidy yeah. up my place and things are there and it's, there's no clutter and imagine if the entire world was clutter free and designed with intent and for just that experience, it, people wouldn't even know why they felt better. No, it's true. And I, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we face now too, is going back to the the notion of sustainability is the the built environment. Um, I'll just throw a little statistics at you. I don't know what the current numbers are, but when I was in college, the built environment was responsible for um, something like 60% of the energy consumption in the world. So while everybody is focused on automobiles and gasoline and electric cars, which are incredibly important, 
you know, everybody, that's the kind of personal connection that people seem to have to sustainability. The reality is, is that we have got to make massive changes in the way that the built environment is, is, is built and operated. Um, because when you think about the amount of carbon and energy that goes into building even just a home, right, um, it's, it's huge. And uh, in the last 20 years, we've been making headway, but we have a long ways to go. And it, 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 that's, I think for ARC 11, that's one of our big challenges is not only do we need to get, going back to one of your earlier questions about telling people that they need to do something different. That's one of the things that we're really, we're digging our heels in and being like, look, you know, if you're going to own an 8,000 square foot house, that house has got to be net zero. That house needs to be virtually as close to off grid as it can possibly be. You need to generate your electricity. Um, you know, you need to have a healthy environment that's not off gassing with chemicals, et cetera. And that, that's that next layer too, that we all need to be aware of um, going through the world in order to, to, to do something about it. I, I would imagine that message is probably better received now than it would be 25, 50 years ago. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's better received in places like Boulder and Aspen and Denver, you know, you hear where we're sort of, you know, I think on board with that as momentum. I mean, you know, we do have clients that are, uh, politics definitely come into architecture. There's no doubt about it. And we do have clients that uh, look at that and say, oh, that's expensive and we're not going to pay for that or that's not one of our motivations. And those are those times where it's like, well, okay, that may not be one of your motivations, but it is ours as a practice. And, you know, for us to do your project, we need to be able to, we need to be able to, to, to sleep at night. So, yeah, well, it, it matters. It absolutely matters. Well, Ken, this has been uh, just absolutely delightful, just digging into the, the, the visual aspect of it, understanding architecture. Um, I'll post links to ARC 11 and I urge everyone to follow the Instagram feed because it's something I look at just when I need some <laughs> tranquility and some calm. And oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, thank you. And then uh, where can people find uh, you and the firm? Um, well, I mean, you can reach out to me at um, my email or at the office. I'm in the Denver office mostly um, or in my home office these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I'm in both offices, uh, both in Denver and Boulder, but my main office is in Denver. Nice. I mean, and I'm happy if, you know, I can give you like, you can distribute my contact information or I can say it. Now. Sure. So you, I'll, you I'll just add a link to it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Just reach out to me. Um, yeah. I'm happy to talk to anybody about anything. Nice. Yeah. And it's uh, arc11.com, A-R-C-H-1-1.com. And yeah. turning it up to 11, is that, uh, tell me please, that spinal tap. <laughs> it, is. it is. So the funny story, yes. so the story, so it, it, it totally is. Um, in fact, oh, I should have worn my ARC 11 shirt t-shirt for you, but our current, so we actually have t-shirts with the volume knob kind of going to 11 with our logo on it. Um, I have one, I think, from Cyclocross, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did yeah. do some for Cyclocross for the team, which I also we sponsor the team. Um, yeah, so when the firm was being founded, um, uh, you know, EJ and James and others in the practice were sitting around trying to figure out what to, to name it. And as EJ tells the story, uh, you know, they were coming up with things like Praxis and other sort of like really kind of philosophical, theoretical names. And I think Rob Reiner's film Spinal Tap was fairly recent in the <laughs> lexicon. And uh, EJ's wife <laughs> walks through the room and says something like, well, what about ARC 11? It's one more than 10. And uh, it's stuck. And for years, people have always been just like, well, what is 11? You know, is it is it some, you know, prime number is it some angle is it whatever and um yeah it really is just as much as being tongue-in-cheek is that our architecture is one more than 10 <laughs> which which as we've matured we actually have just now embraced that it's just like you know what you also have to have some levity in what we do and uh, it's, uh the world is too serious we do serious <laughs> stuff but we're also trying to be fun people so what other reason would you need to hire Arc Eleven than just the origin of the name and just to tell you about the people you're dealing with? That's all yeah, you need yeah. to know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, I hope I don't come across super serious because ultimately, like, we are we like to think that we're really fun to work with, you know. So, and that's that's what's most important. 
if you're going to have a relationship with an architect for a long time, you better have fun doing it because it's a lot of work. So. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Ken Andrews, thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to finally do this and uh, sincerely appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It's been an awesome experience. So. Cool. Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple, Transistor, or Spotify. And I know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest. And if you do, please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com. Thanks for listening.